Welcome to Evil Done Badly, the worst podcast ever. This is the podcast where we discuss various true crime cases in the most annoying way possible. My name is Dick, I have an irritating voice, and I will be your hapless host today. Just like every other day. It's always going to just be me, face it, because no one else is ever going to want to appear in this show anyway. Now today, we will be talking about a grisly murder case from 2008 that got the whole world's knickers worked up into a tizzy. This is the case of Jody Arias and Travis Alexander. This case was a sensation, and I can't believe I haven't covered it yet. So, before we start, grab yourself a beverage, hold on to your arse, and let's hear the theme song. This episode of Evil Done Badly is brought to you by the My Pod Shovel. It's a totally convenient, compact, five foot long wooden music player that you can use to clear the snow in your driveway and listen to this lousy podcast. This Bluetooth powered shovel is versatile. You can enjoy your favorite Nana Muscuri tunes while flinging cow shit onto your neighbor's property. Comes in silver and gravedigger black varieties. Get yourself a MyPod shovel and start concealing those dead bodies today. And when you're ready to relax, after a hard day of disposing of your victims, sign up to the wide world of paranormal investigations and ridiculous thrifter groups on Facebook. One covers paranormal shenanigans and the other covers thrift culture, comedy, and a whole lot of bad puns. Either way, they're abnormally entertaining, and you won't be sorry. Now back to the show. Travis Alexander was born in 1977 in California. He had a shitty childhood, but he persevered nonetheless. Persevered? What the fuck? What is that? Uh, hold on. Oh! Oh, oh, oh. I've Googled it, and it's persevered. Persevered, that's a great word. Uh, whoever writes this crap should uh, use uh, smaller ones. Moving on. Despite this shitty childhood, he grew up with an outgoingly aggressive personality. And at times, it was a little too aggressive, and that led him to getting into fights, and even worse, taking up stand-up comedy. He was a motivational speaker for a legal services company and he gave up the fisticuffs when he joined the Mormons. So in 2008, he was just an outgoing, motivational religious guy. Nothing wrong with that. Now the other character in his story is Jody. Jody Arias. She was born in 1980 in California and dropped out of school to be a photographer. She was exceptional at photographing things, and that played no part whatsoever in her striking a job at the same law services company that Travis was working at. These two hooked up at a conference in Las Vegas. I'm pretty sure that's where all the big Mormon get-togethers happen. 
It's the perfect place to be outgoing and religious. Yep, seems about right. And in late 2006, Arias, she was not feeling devout enough in her heathen ways, so she decided to switch over to Mormonism herself and wanted to be baptized. So Travis fires up his holy water and baptizes her. Hallelujah, everybody's pious. Praise be to Jesus. Thank the Lord. So Arias, she joins the convent and spends the rest of her life dedicating her time to praising the Lord Almighty. Or whoever the hell the Mormons spend all their time praising, but I, I'm pretty sure it's just God. And by joining the convent, I mean that, well, she and Travis hook up and they get together a few months later. And they start sending each other naughty text messages. Hey, like, they go like this. It's like, hey, baby, you don't need any more men. I'm more men enough for you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fuck's sakes. Mormon puns are hard to come up with, okay? It's not easy. And maybe uh, whoever wrote this is just very terrible at being funny. Uh, that's more like it. Moving on. So these two started dating on and off and would carry on a long-distance relationship while Travis was living in Arizona and Arias was living in California with her grandmother. And being a good Mormon, Travis would uh, see other girls in between dating Arias and all the while still having dirty sexting sessions with her. And before you ask, I know what's coming. What does the Book of Mormon say about all this? Well, it says it's okay. I looked it up so you don't have to. Take it from me. I know my sacred textbooks here. According to the Book of Mormon, sending raunchy text messages is a surefire way to get yourself into heaven. But what about the premarital sex that Travis and Arias were having? Well, that's going a bit too far. That's forbidden. And these two fornicators will surely spend an eternity rotting in hell. Travis didn't want to rot in hell for eternity, so he repeatedly tries to cut ties with her. Now, Arias didn't want to have her ties cut, so she becomes increasingly possessive of him and acting strangely whenever he tried to move on with his life and see other people. Now, Travis didn't really help this situation because one minute he's calling her a slut and a whore and telling her to keep her evil horny vagina away from him. The next minute he's um, kind of hopping into bed with her and helping himself to her evil horny vagina. Okay, so does Jesus approve of this? No, I don't think he does. And I think they're both going to hell. And uh, needless to say... From Travis's point of view, it's hard to make a clean break of it when you're busy getting your righteous rocks off. So, Travis does not make a clean break of it, and this only makes Arias get even loopier. She gets into hardcore stalker mode and starts combing through his emails and his Facebook account. She starts tormenting Travis's other female friends, and even resorted to slashing his tires. I can't imagine why he wanted to get away from this crazy bitch. Now, 
Travis, he thinks she's a crazy bitch too, but his Mormonness uh, prevents him from actually saying so. So Travis just calls her a sociopath instead and jokes, well, sort of, uh, only sort of, kind of jokes to his friends, quote, Don't be surprised if you find me dead one day, unquote. Uh, so, uh, he's, he's got his, uh, he's got his doubts and something is totally askew here. Now, Travis continues to try and move on with his life. And he plans a trip to Cancun with his friends. Uh, Arias was originally on the friends list, but uh, she got booted off in favor of uh, some less psycho girl. And needless to say, Arias is not exactly thrilled about that. So, uh, Travis is happy. He can't wait to leave the country and get the fuck away from her. But before he leaves... He has a deal with a uh, work conference call. And this conference call is supposed to happen on June 4th. But he never signs in and he doesn't make the call. So, uh, in the meantime though, Arias, she keeps attending work. And makes contact with a Ryan Burns from the company. Now, Burns would later state that Arias had uh, turned her hair from blonde to black, right out of the blue. And, uh, even more disturbingly, she had noticeable cuts on her hands. Well, she told him that she did that while she was cutting kumquats into slices at a restaurant. That's, yeah, the kumquats, they're nasty. They are nasty vegetables, and, you know, that can really happen. Either way, she's acting weird, and for someone with sociopathic tendencies... It leaves you with an unpeaceful, uneasy feeling. She also rented a car, drove it about 4,000 miles, and returned it with red stains inside of it. This, this, this is uh, looking pretty fishy here. Unfortunately, the car's interior could not be analyzed because the rental company, well, they didn't like the red stains and they had it detailed right after it was returned. Now... This group of Travis's friends, who were preparing for this trip, well, they'd like to get in contact with Travis and, you know, just go over some of the details. Details like, Hey, who's going to volunteer to peddle our Mormonic beliefs to the drug cartels while we're down there? You know, we got to do some witnessing. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a hot ticket there. Uh, good luck with that. I'm sure you'll find plenty of... Uh, <laughs> uh, reasonable drug dealers down there, yeah, who want to be saved. Anyway, Travis is unreachable for about five days. Now, that's not a great sign. So his friends are concerned, and they go to his house. His roommates search around, and they find a key to his bedroom. And when they get inside, they are greeted with a trail of blood leading to the bathroom. Now... These poor friends had to find Travis covered in blood and unconscious in the shower. Travis had sustained 27 stab wounds, a cut throat, and a gunshot to the head. Travis had been dead for at least four days at this point. So, naturally, 
everyone freaks out and they call 911. And the operator asks them if Travis had been suicidal. Uh, this person is clearly unaware of the extent of Travis's injuries. No, no, he did not commit suicide. Poor Travis is absolutely mutilated. The operator then asks if there's anyone who would possibly, you know, have any reason to harm Travis. And unanimously, the answer is, well, yes. Why, yes, yes there is. So they immediately finger Arias, well, like a bunch of good Mormons would, and they fill the operator in on just how unhinged she could be. She immediately becomes suspect numero uno. Numero uno, yeah. That's the extent of my Spanish right there. Uh, I won't be going to Mexico to uh, witness the glory of God anytime soon. Investigators would ask Arias what she knows about the events leading up to Travis's murder. And she says something to the effect of, Well, I don't know nothing. Haven't seen this Travis guy in two months. Two months. Haven't seen him. Haven't laid eyes on him. We're on the outs. He's an asshole. Haven't seen him in two months. And uh, while she's saying all this, uh, at this point, she has no idea what the police have turned up. Now, the police have snooped around a bit. And at the crime scene, they find something peculiar in the washing machine. It's a digital camera. I mean, that seems kind of insignificant, doesn't it? How important can that be? I mean, I thought everybody kept their digital cameras in their washing machine. I mean, a, a good dose of Tide every now and then keeps it working better and fresh smelling. What's weird about that? Anyways, it turns out it fucking is important because the police find that the memory has been wiped and, well, it's a bit wet. But despite the witness and the wipiness, they take the power of 2008 technology and they get a bunch of computer nerds to recover the deleted pictures on the camera memory. These pictures depict these devout Mormons doing very suggestive things. And that's fine. Be as suggestive as you want and take pictures of it. I'm sure more people would join the Mormons if that was part of the curriculum. But these photos, these photos are time-stamped. And that puts Arias not away from Travis, but it puts her pretty much literally in Travis's bed around the time of the murder. So she had said, I haven't seen him in two months. Haven't seen him in two months, my ass. Not only does it place her in the vicinity of Travis, it makes her one big-ass fucking liar. And this gets worse. These pictures will soon tell a very different story. Once you get past these, well, casual erotic moments between two people who supposedly love each other very much, it starts to get way more sinister. At 5.29 p.m., a picture of Travis alone in the shower appears. That's also fine. Go ahead, Travis. Shake it if you got it. But the following, the immediately following this, this is Travis's last known 
sensible picture. And uh, the next pictures will go on to depict Travis in various states of profuse bleeding, lying on the bathroom floor. That is fucking brutal. Not only was Arias having sex with him when she said she wasn't, she also managed to conceal her murderous actions by taking pictures of them. So this this looks very bad for her already. And we're barely getting started. Not to mention, they also analyzed a bloody handprint that they found on the wall of the hallway. And it shows up positive for DNA from both Arias and Travis. She is totally fucked here. And, well, she's told about those pictures. And, well, it's time to uh, pivot here. So she decides to come clean by making up a batshit crazy story about two dudes who broke in and killed Travis. And it goes a little something like this. She says, yes, I was at Travis's apartment in the last two months. Like I said, I wasn't. And, well, me and Travis, we've been having copulations together. Then one day, in the middle of it, two guys burst in, wearing masks, kill Travis, and, well, they swear her to secrecy, and they threaten her well-being. I mean, she was in fear for her life and doing the only reasonable thing. The police roll their eyes and tell her she's full of shit, and they arrest her. And all the while, she somehow still manages to claim to be... Well, not guilty. So, she sticks to the intruder story for a while. And then she's informed of the DNA handprint thing and that her polyonucleotides were found inside of it. Okay, that's pretty damning. And it's time for her to switch up her story again. This time, the two invaders magically disappear. They don't exist anymore. But now, in this version of the story, Travis is now a violent madman. He's also the type of guy who wants to tie her up and bang her up the ass. According to her, Travis got upset when she dropped the camera. And he went completely nutso, and she just had to kill him in self-defense. So, uh, Arias' lawyer tried to paint Travis as a sex-addicted porno maniac who was physically abusive. And as far as I know, everybody else who testified on Travis's behalf afterwards, uh, well, Travis might have liked sex and he might have liked porno, but I don't think he uh, came up with, uh, you know, nobody was able to convincingly say that he's physically abusive. That's pretty much off the table, and Arias is the only one saying that. Now, the prosecution, in the meantime, uh, they go ahead and they just make her look like a crazy psycho bitch, and they had plenty of ammunition to do so. They, they were really gunning to bring her down. On top of that, they sought the death penalty. So, after four months of trial... She's found guilty of first-degree murder. And apparently in Arizona, a jury has to vote unanimously 
to uh, do away with you and have you hung or gassed or whatever. So one jury has a go at it, and the jury misfires and votes 8-4 to four in favor of the death penalty. So that's thrown in the garbage, and they try it again. These next 12 jurors also misfire. This time, though, there is only one holdout, and the score is 11-1 to one in favor of frying this crazy cunt. The other 11 jurors tried to have the dissenter tossed from the group on the basis that they were tainted with some sort of pre-existing bias against having people murdered by the government. And so this dissenter, for uh, standing up for what they believe in, they were subjected to death threats and other assorted harassments. Yeah, they, yeah I gotta say, this whole jury duty thing does not sound fun at all. So, uh, yeah... People should not act like that towards jurors, no matter how much they disagree with them. And uh, they started to, uh, you know, treat her very bad and act a little bit like psychos themselves. And they shouldn't do that. Of course, the irony here is, if people didn't act like psychos, there'd be no need for podcasts like this one. <laughs> Obviously, no one needs this particular podcast because there are plenty more podcasts out there. That cover these subjects way more competently. But I'm glad y'all are here for this one. Thanks for listening. Where was I again? Right. Uh, eventually, everyone calms the fuck down and moves on while the death penalty is taken off the table. So the judge gives her a stern talking to and gives her life in prison with no chance of parole. That seems to be the only logical choice here. Anything less would have been an insult to all the nice people who voted to have her executed. Now, that means she was this close to being euthanized. I know you can't see what I'm doing here, but I'm making a very small gap between my thumb and forefinger to illustrate just how close she was to the brink of death. And if she uh, had any sense at all, she should thank her lucky stars she gets to rot away in jail cell for the rest of her life but that's not good enough for this entitled idiot. And on October 17th, 2019, Arias appeals based on the idea that the initial case and trial was turned into a media frenzy. And this media circus therefore rendered the verdict invalid. Okay, and the judge hears her out and says, yep. It was a goddamn media circus. It was bonkers. But that doesn't change the underlying mountain of evidence and the fact that you were a completely, undoubtedly crazy fucktard. So, she's stuck in jail and will hopefully be there forever and tied to a tree and banged up the ass repeatedly. Never mind, it's a bad idea. She's totally up for that. If she can't be fried... At least make her uncomfortable. Her trial already costs millions of dollars. Stop wasting money on gruel for her. How much is it to rent a firing squad for a few minutes? Can't be that much. No wonder the U.S. is broke. That is terrible financial prison math. Okay, we're just about done here, but we do have one fun fact about this case. And that is, Arias's brother was selling her artwork on eBay in 2013. He said that the proceeds 
went towards travel expenses for the family and for better gruel for a rise while she was in prison. She doesn't deserve better gruel, but you know what? Maybe the U.S. penal system should make it mandatory that all prisoners sit around and paint all day so that they can sell these paintings on eBay and recoup some of the costs of having these criminals locked up. There's bound to be a few secret Picassos sitting around in jail somewhere. And there's bound to be plenty of sickos who will pay real money for these things. Someone should definitely look into that. And that will do it for Jody Arias. Poor Travis Alexander is not coming back. And she's right where she should be. She's not dead. But, well, what are you going to do? She's fucking bonkers. She's not going to hurt anybody else. But before we finish up, we have a uh, quick update to discuss here. Tim Bleefnik had previously appeared on an episode of Family Feud and was asked about his marriage. Host Steve Harvey asked him what he regretted about getting married, and he answered with, quote, saying, quote, I do, unquote, unquote. His uh, wife wasn't on the show, but it still didn't go over well with the audience. And the segment ended with him trying to smooth it over by saying that he loved his wife. And he admitted he was going to get in trouble for that comment. Now fast forward to today. And Bleefnik has now been sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole ever for the shooting death of his wife, Becky. See, three years after his appearance on Family Feud, Leafnik broke into his estranged wife's place. She was, oddly enough, in the process of leaving him, and shot her 14 times while his kids were asleep in the house. What a cunt. You cannot make this shit up. Three children now don't have a mother or a father because this abusive fucker couldn't control himself. It's tragic and it's tragic that he's not going to be hung for what he's done. Question, when did we decide that capital punishment was a bad thing? The more podcast episodes I do, the more bewildered I am that these monsters are allowed to exist. That is fucked up and definitely needs to be uh, updated in the uh, you know penal code, criminal books, whatever you call them. And... There you have it, another inane episode of the worst true crime podcast ever, Evil Done Badly, is in the books. If you would like to reach out and suggest future episode topics, we can be reached on Twitter or Instagram at Evil Done Badly, or by email at EvilDoneBadly at gmail.com. So thanks for listening, my name is Dick, and I hope to see you next time. Thanks again, bye bye.